Coming up on Leading Edge. So I think as well as value, the other aspect is, are these companies easy to do business with? We know that ease of doing business drives advocacy, value for money and loyalty. So the companies that are really easy to do business with, we keep going back. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason. In this third series, we're discussing topics as varied as when to hit the off switch if you're suffering from techno stress, if green finance is the new black, how to create the right kind of digital disruption and the rise of the activist leader. Today, I'm joined by Moira Clark, who's a professor of strategic marketing and the founder of the Henley Centre for Customer Management. She's worked with GlaxoSmithKline, Lloyd's Banking Group and Mercedes Finance. Just a few of the companies she's helped to have happy, delighted customers. And that brings us to our main topic today, which is the customer experience, the Great Reset. Moira, welcome. Hi, Thomas. Lovely to be here today. Thank you. Yes, our Great Reset for Leading Edge Series 3 is that we're doing a bit of a hybrid model. So we've got some of our guests in the studio in London and some virtually. So you're down the line, but we can hear you loud and clear. So great to have you, Moira. And to start off... I understand that you believe we're in this era now of ever-increasing customer expectations. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about this and what the implications are for companies trying to serve those customers. Thanks, Thomas. Well, uh, perhaps before I talk about the increasing expectations, it might be worth just setting the scene for who our customers are today, because what we do know is that they are older, more demanding and, and confident, and they always want to be in control. So we've got these huge ageing population despite COVID-19. So there are now, I don't know if you know this, more people in the UK over the age of 65 than there are under the age of 15. And of course, as people get older, they get grumpier. Um, I don't suppose you know, Thomas, what the age of grumpiness is, what the age of grumpiness starts at in the UK. Well, I don't know. I mean, I know that my dad and his friend, they formed what was called the Grumpy Club, but probably when they got to about 60. So I'm going to go with, yeah, 61. Okay. No, actually, it's a lot younger. It's actually 35. So uh, we're getting grumpier, younger. Well, and I think really what that's about is people getting much, much more demanding. And of course, older people want quite different things. You know, they they need more light. They need better sound, uh, you know, comfort, uh, time to do things and so forth. So we've got this ageing population that are confident, they're in control. And they've also got this increasing customer expectations in general, we see. So from the research we've done in the Henley Centre for Customer Management, we now know that customers do expect a perfect customer experience, you know. And whilst we were prepared perhaps to cut companies a bit of slack at the beginning of of lockdown or, you know, even perhaps three quarters of the way through, people now are really getting fed up with the fact that people are saying, well, due to lockdown, this really isn't a good thing. So um, generally speaking, we are We have a desire for a better customer experience. And also we want it now. This immediacy is massively important, you know, the want it now generation. And also we want an omnipresent experience. And what I mean by that is that um, whatever channel we choose to use, we want to be able to find that company on that channel. So, you know, this multi-channel approach to sales, you know, is really becoming important to creating this seamless customer experience, if you like, seamless shopping experience. And, and we also want companies to be more, much more proactive in terms of providing us with that uh, customer service. 
as well as really entertainment and innovation. I mean, if you think about it, I don't know what, whether you've been back to the high street at all, but I certainly have, have hardly been back to the high street. And when you make the effort to go, actually, you want it to be a great experience. You want to be entertained. You want it to be innovative. You want it to be, to be different, you know. And we also want it to be easy as well. So all of these increasing expectations have a huge implication for business today and, and a huge implication for companies trying to serve customers. So, so what we have seen is this massive flight to digital and omni-channel experience. You know, I don't know if you know that e-commerce sales last year grew by 30% in the UK. And in fact, 72% of retail professionals said the crisis accelerated their digitization plans by at least one or two years. And, and in fact, some said it, it increased it by three years. So it's amazing when companies really focus on what they need to do, they can really do it quickly. I mean, some companies that have been saying, oh, it's going to take us years to do this. Well, suddenly they've done it. So it is quite extraordinary. So that, that company is becoming much more digital, I think, has really um, been a, a you know something significant that we've seen during lockdown yes i mean i've been continuing to work throughout the lockdown and quite a few lunch breaks wandering down oxford street or regent street and there were there were times when those companies closed and you only had a few you know essential retailers like a coffee shop or something open but there were there was certainly a bit of an excitement when all those shops opened up and i certainly took the advantage to upgrade my wardrobe by going to john lewis because everything seemed to be 70 percent off so that that was a, a, del one, a delighted customer perhaps for the wrong reasons but but it's interesting you say isn't it moira that 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 phrase that we hear when we ring up our bank or whatever due to covid or obviously due to covid it's going to take a half an hour 60 minutes to answer the phone now, I suppose that may have made sense at the start of the pandemic when everyone was scrambling to introduce home working. It may make sense some of the time now if people are getting pinged by the NHS COVID-19 app, a bit of a ping-demic affecting workers. But as you say, I think we do expect, don't we, that customers and companies are going to adjust uh, and i think have you have you found there's some in information on the number of complaints going to the companies as well yeah well we saw certainly at the start of lockdown um let's say the first you know chunk of last year if you like from february through to perhaps before christmas um complaints had really dropped down significantly because people were cutting companies a lot of slack and they didn't want to add to their burden by complaining more but actually, since um, really this year, if you like, people have become much more intolerant again because they do feel, actually, you've had enough time now to sort things out. And being left waiting on a phone for a significantly long time for people to answer a call is just not acceptable anymore. Or people taking an overly long time to um, uh, make a repayment or deal with a particular issue. So people have become intolerant again now. And the trouble is, you see, you see some companies that are really good at this and manage it really well. And so you say, well, if that company can do this, why on earth can't company X, Y or Z do it? So we're, we're constantly in our mind comparing different companies and going, well, you know, everybody should now have got this sorted uh, by this point. Yeah, maybe not due to COVID, but due to incompetence then. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're getting increasingly grumpy. Uh, I might even be in the grumpy club myself in terms of your age demographic. Couldn't possibly comment. Um, another cloud that we've got approaching on the economic horizon, Moira, uh, is the spectre of inflation. Uh, and that's 
the sense that the pandemic has, for a lot of companies, increased their costs, distortions in the labour market, people being on furlough. That's actually meaning that wages in many areas are shooting up for some companies. But as you're saying, the intolerance may vary depending on the strength of the brand, how well they have managed to keep in touch with us during a lockdown period. Do do you think some companies are better positioned to put their prices up for us uh, and actually we we will tolerate that? Well, I think that really depends on if the if the company has been successful at communicating to us the value proposition that they have. So if you're really good as an organization at delivering good value to the customer and also not taking advantage of the situation, then I think we're, we kind of are much more accepting of that. But if we feel that companies are taking advantage of us and using the pandemic as a way of milking more out of the customer, then I think that, that we won't be very tolerant of that, which is why I think local businesses have done very, very well um, generally out of the pandemic as local retailers and, and uh, restaurants in particular, because uh, we see that, you know, they are struggling. They've struggled through the pandemic. They're being very transparent about the stresses and the problems that they have with the customer. And so people are saying, well, do you know what? I'd much rather shop local than perhaps use Amazon, for example, because I know that I know that they're trying to keep keep open. We know that perhaps they treat their employees well. So how companies treat their employees, I think, is another aspect to this. So I think those that are in a good position to put prices up are those that um, have good value for the customer. How, how do you measure that value? I mean, if you look at, say, a, a Waitrose or an Audi, are we more likely to be tolerant to, and less demanding of one rather than the other? Well, I think I think that depends on what your goal is. If you know what the customer's goal is, if your goal is actually, you know, saving money is the most important thing for me. So I'm going to put up with whatever I get from Aldi or you know, for I know we're flying or whoever. So money is really important. So I don't mind if it's if, if it's cheap because I know I won't get great service. But if your goal is much more experiential, where you actually have pleasure from going shopping and you go to somewhere like Waitrose, I think if you've got bad customer service from Waitrose, we're probably much more intolerant of that. So I think it, it depends on what goal you're trying to achieve as a customer. Right. And as you say, part of it's about the price. And I think part of it, You've got this very interesting model acronym, which is to do with how easy it is to do business and and what makes us go to a company and and then keep coming back. Absolutely. Um, You know, ease of doing business, I think, is is massively important. And you said actually about, you know, really which companies are best positioned to put their prices up and will, will we tolerate and so forth. So I think as well as value, the other aspect is, are these companies easy to do business with and will they provide us with a pleasurable experience? So if we look at the ease of doing business piece, we know that ease of doing business drives advocacy value for money and loyalty. So the companies that are really easy to do business with, we keep going back because it's kind of a no-brainer. It's just so easy to keep shopping from Amazon, if you like. Um, And we know that ease of doing business is the number one driver of advocacy amongst customers. And it's also good because actually it engages and resonates with staff. You can say to staff, well, do you think that's easy for the customer? You know, it's also something that's applicable to every business and to all channels. And even internally, actually, you could say about your own company, is our HR department easy to do business with? Is our finance department easy to do business with? Um, So it's kind of a nice way of looking at things. And so the model that we have for that is this model called kept, if you like. 
Absolutely not. It's, you know, <laughs> what keeps us as customers. And it starts with, Great. I know it's not a K, it's a C, but cognitive ease. So mentally, are we easy to do business with? You know, um, is your website easy to navigate? Um, do you provide customers with just enough information so you're not overloading them? You know, are the directions simple and easy? Are the instructions easy? Now, there's some really interesting work, actually, um, Thomas, from a, Daniel Kahneman. It's a great book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I don't know if you've come a, across it before. I've attempted to listen to it in audiobook format, yeah. So I've, there's a lot of people who are very keen on it. Tell us what that's all about. Well, what he says is that actually we're cognitive misers. We will do anything to not use our right. brains because we're actually cognitively lazy. And so the easier a company makes it for us to not have to think, then the more likely it is that we're going to be happy with them. So you've got to make it a kind of a no-brainer, if you like, which, of course, is why we had all the mis-selling cases that came up um, in recent years. Uh, because companies had made it so easy, they'd accidentally missold. Uh, and of course, the FCA have now put in this kind of, you know, two-week cooling off period and so forth. So there's cognitive ease anyway, where you've got to make it mentally easy for people, which is why we love websites where a couple of clicks and we're done. Uh, then there's emotional ease, making things pleasurable, you know, and that can be relationships with, with staff and perhaps other customers. You know, when you go into a, a, a store or you speak to somebody in the contact centre and they're just so lovely and polite and charming and helpful. I mean, that's all emotional ease. So I'm not stressed out. I know they're going to be there and help me, which is one of the reasons I've traditionally always loved going into John Lewis, because it's emotionally easy. You know, if you've ever had a complaint, oh, it's no trouble, we can sort that out for you. And also emotional ease is about making sure complaints are being perhaps properly dealt with and you're not being given the runaround or particularly yeah. in these COVID times as well, safety and security, you know, feeling that I'm in safe hands. So I'm not stressed out because actually they've got the traffic flow through the premises uh, sorted out and there's enough hand sanitizer. We've then for RP on kept, we've got physical ease making it physically easy for us to do business with. So for me, that is not having to send parcels back to suppliers. I absolutely hate that. You know, you've bought things online and it's not right. And you've got to send it back. That drives me mad. Um, but also physically, perhaps not having to go to physical meetings anymore, you know, using Teams or Zoom or whatever. And that's closely related to the last letter, time, of the kept. Uh, time is saving us time. So speed of delivery, you know, Amazon Prime getting it next day or not having to queue or wait in any channel and not having to explain things again and again. So that's really what we mean by the, the ease of doing business model. Yes, yeah, certainly that, that physical ease, I, I've had a few nightmare scenarios of where I've had ordered something online, thought it was the right thing, and then had the horror of having to, to take it back. And sometimes that's, you know, it's not just going to the post office, that, that's a fairly simple one. You know, you've got to find some obscure delivery depot, and then it closes at a different time, and they send you one label, but in fact it's two packages, and, you know, you end up, it's almost like doing a hike to the Himalayas by the time you've got all these boxes back. Even the best company, well, you will have to send things back sometimes, but they might give you a prepaid box, or they, they might make it easier for you. One of my pet hates, actually, is if you're in a supermarket, and you almost need a PhD in mathematics to 
to compare, should I be buy the loose apples mm. or shall I buy the apples that are already in a bag? <laughs> and they're not making it easy for you, you know? It, it depends. I suppose for me, it depends what, what mood what mood I'm in. You know, there are times when I love going for all those offers and, and the value. But there's, as you say, there's that, that cognitive and that physical element that can, that can really change uh, your, your view on it. And, and of course, what we've seen actually, and, and again, COVID has really um, accelerated this, if you like, is that um, when you're buying things online, one of the issues, apart from the, the buying process, which you want to be as frictionless as possible, but the other aspect is deciding, is this the right product for me? And so we're now seeing like Ray-Ban glasses, for example, you can have virtual try-ons. Yes. So you don't have to just buy them all mm. and then decide which one. Or L'Oreal, for example, you can do um, see what your hair colour would look like. So it photographs you and you can try different hair colours or different makeup. And the one that I really love is Ikea. I don't know if you've tried Ikea augmented reality app, which is fantastic. <laughs> you can um, take a, a measurements of your office, which I did for my office, and then you can take one of their tables and you scan it in and you look at how does it look like in my office or my dining room or what does the sofa look like? I mean, these are things that now really are going to make our lives so much easier in terms of trying to decide in advance of getting the product home, whether it's going to be the right product for me. So this is your omni-channel. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, getting the right, getting the right channel, and I think companies that have embraced that kind of technology are really going to come out of this really well. Great, and then just also, there's a bit of a, a difference. Do you think? Do men and women want different things from the customer experience? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, men, well, you, you know what it's like. I'm sure you do, Thomas. You know, <laughs> women traditionally love going shopping traditionally, and we love having a browse and a natter and spending quite a long time over the whole shopping experience if you have got the time. It's not always the case, but, of course, if you can, it, people, women mostly like it, and they like the interpersonal nature of that. Men usually just like to go in, get what they want and leave. And what we see is that online, it's opposite to that. So online, men can get lost into hyperspace for hours on end. Time has right. no meaning with a man when he's shopping online. <laughs> Whereas women online, we tend to do the opposite. We tend to, we're, we're very focused about, well, I need a dress for a wedding. And so we'll right. hunt and hunt and hunt till we get what we've got and maybe order however many versions of it. So it, we're much more determined about what we want because what we miss is the, the interpersonal piece and actually men don't particularly, I mean, these are huge generalizations. I appreciate that. But typically men don't need, need that interpersonal connection in quite the same way. Yes. And sometimes also you say well, it, there can be differences when you're buying a certain item like a car. Uh, there, there's the broadcaster, Ryland Clark. He promotes a company called Cinch, C-I-N-C-H. Uh, and the, the tagline there is it's the easy way to buy a car online. So, so online you know, it's it's quite difficult to represent the physical showroom, but there, there are different elements that you might get in a physical situation, like a negotiation or handling on the price. Uh, is that possible or even desirable online? I think companies are are doing that online. It, again, it depends on the kind of technology that people have. But I know there are now virtual uh, assistants where you can actually talk to somebody and they can actually show demonstrate the product to you online. But I'm I'm a bit. We're actually doing some research, interestingly, for Honey at the moment looking at high involvement products right. and we found people who've bought pianos online and sofas online and uh, I myself bought a fridge freezer online because our fridge freezer broke a few days before Easter during the first lockdown so um, we were amazed to find that people will buy those products online but it is harder and the easier a company can make that for you the better so um, you know there's no reason at all why you can't 
send samples, for example, of, well, we were looking at buying light switches online where you have a metal casing around the light switch and some of them are brushed steel, some of them are shiny steel and so forth. But why not send the customer just a small sample of that? Or if it's a sofa, you can send out a small sample of the, what the fabric would be like. But... Um, yeah, I think there are ways of getting over that. And especially looking at the need for touch. We have a huge need for touch, in fact. And so using technology where you can zoom in on something and you can actually see the fabric in detail gives us more a sense of what the fabric will feel like. Or having rotation devices where you can actually rotate the item and see how it flows. So there are ways of getting some of that across to us in the absence of actually having the physical good. And companies, I think, need to wake up to that. Well, very interesting in your slight generalisation, but an interesting one about time having no meaning online where, you know, when when us men are, are looking for something. Uh, it gives me a bit of a reaction, actually, to your kept model, to what keeps us going back. Uh, and th this is a book that I read a couple of years ago, uh, a chap called Barry Swartz. It was called The Paradox of Choice. And the, he introduced this concept, and this is about the research process that we do when we, and wherever we buy something, uh, of maximisers versus satisfizers. So the idea was that the maximizer would want, you know, would want that perfect purchase on, on all the things. So if it was your fridge freezer example, it wouldn't just be the best price, but it would be the best specification. It might be the best energy efficiency. They might look at how many litre capacity there was, you know, how quick, how long did it take to make some ice? And, and then they would compare that against three different retailers and maybe they would look if one gave them cash back and all that kind of thing. Uh, and that would be a maximizer. And then the satisfiers will say, well, look, I just want a fridge freezer because it's Easter and I need to, you know, get the whatever it is we eat at Easter, not turkey, but something I need. I need I need a party and I need the family round and I just need something that works. So I reckon personally, you, you're right. I am a bit more of a maximizer and I do that research to try and get the absolute best deal. What, what, what about you? you know, I'm not sure how this plays into your ease of business model, but would you say you're more of a maximizer? Or a no, I'm, I'm definitely a satisficer, but I think it depends on different aspects of your life. So in theory, for me, the perfect mix would be to satisfy to satisfy most of the time and only maximize the decision process when the stakes are high. Yeah. So the, the stakes were high for me for that fridge freezer because I had a sp very specific space it needed to fit in and I wanted it to be almost identical to the previous one. So I did loads of research on that because the stakes were high. But in other instances, I am not um, a maximizer at all. I would just say, oh, you know, that, that will do for me. I don't, I don't maximize. And that's where I think Daniel Kahneman comes in, in, you see, because he would say most of us actually are cognitive misers. And you're obviously not a cognitive miser, Thomas. <laughs> but, you know, if a lot of us are cognitive misers, a lot of us actually don't want to read through the small print. And they're happy to go to websites like Go Compare, uh, you know, the, the, some of these comparison websites so that other people do the homework for us. And I think as we're going full circle now to having these older customers and older employees, remember, as well, is that as we get older, our brain processing uh, declines, sadly. You know, we're not, we're not good at multitasking quite the same way. We need more time to digest information and so forth. And that's where AI, I think, will come in here to actually help us make some of those decisions. So you can put in the variables of the fridge freezer that you want 
and some nice you know algorithm will pop up with the right answer for us that, that's what i'm rather looking forward to yeah i suppose i suppose if we don't want to read the small print then it, do, it does create a potential risk and, and we do want to be dealing with companies in that in that sense that we can really trust absolutely i and i think that's trust is really essential here um and and sadly these days trust is is on the decline isn't it you know we tend in many cultures we don't trust the police anymore we don't trust the government anymore we don't trust the banks anymore we went through a phase where we didn't trust the supermarkets after remember the horse meat scandal so there's been many scandals where we really don't trust very much so for companies who have got that trust with their customers it's a very precious thing which needs to be nurtured and if you lose the trust with your customers i think that it's it's very difficult to come back from and if we're leading companies or we aspire to work perhaps in in the retail sector what what do you think the implications of your your cat model are for leaders how do we create this culture of customer centricity in our organizations and is, is it even a desirable thing to have um, I think it is a very desirable thing to have. And what we know is that companies that are customer centric are much more successful than those that aren't. And for me, it comes down to a lot of people talk about culture, but actually I like talking about organizational climate, which is about what are the practices, the procedures and the reward systems that you have in organizations. So what is the reality of what goes on around here? You know, because uh, to steal a quote from Sir Adrian Cabri, you know, we can judge companies and managers by their actions not their pious statements of intent. So com many companies are great at saying, oh, we put the customer at the heart of the business and the customer is the most important thing to us. But their behavior just doesn't show that. Sometimes when I'm in a contact set on a call for a contact center and you get that dreadful message saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, your call is important to us. You know, mm. I'm sorry for the delay. I start speaking to it and saying, if my call was really that important to you, you wouldn't leave me waiting here for ages. So my point is your, you know, your actions speak louder than words. So I think looking at companies practices procedures and reward systems and how customer focused and customer centric they are is really really important and again we did quite a bit of research into that at Henley um, we might be doing it over time in fact and looking at what are the key ingredients of having the right kind of climate and one of the things there's many others but in the interest of time one of the things that's really important and we see in the most in the best performing companies is cohesion and what we know is that the best performing companies are very cohesive. And um, what's funny about this, which is really, really sad, is the most common model is where the managers, the staff and the customers collectively pull together and they hate head office. That is the oh, most right. common model. But they're very, very successful. And of course, that's not really ideal, is it? Because actually you want us all to pull together. So really, the, the, most, the best model you really want is where the managers take on board what head office want interpret it for their staff and then for their customers and where that exists and it does exist what you want is not so much um, you either want a common enemy ideally maybe the competition or it could be the regulator or you want a common cause you've got to have something that you can all pull together uh, for or against and my lovely example of that really is Boots uh, Pharmacy with uh, Macmillan Cancer Research because they have a common cause that they all pull together 
uh, with. Now, at the other end of the spectrum with uh, poor performing companies, what we know is that in the poor performing companies, the managers and the staff pull together. They not only hate head office, but they hate the customers as well. The customers get in the way of what otherwise would be really a great day. And that's really quite dangerous. And I'm sure you've had those experiences when you're talking to um, a member of staff and they start moaning to you about their manager or head office and you know and one of my favorite things these days is if I get bad service I don't complain I just say oh are you having a bad day and it opens up a whole minefield where people say you've no idea it's so awful working here and they start telling you all their problems and it's because the climate of the organization is so poor so I think you've really got to get the right kind of organizational climate here if you want a good customer-centric organization. So it's a good idea to try and get the person on the end of the phone on on your side. Doesn't matter if they're in a call centre halfway across the world. So some of us are a bit grumpy, but but the keys then Moira to stop us from being grumpy. If you can just remind us the four pillars of that of that kept model, which keeps us coming back as customers. Well, it's cognitive ease. It's making it easy mentally for the customer. So not giving them loads and loads of complicated things to read or terms and conditions and so forth or making the website easy to access. It's emotional ease, making it pleasurable, letting your customers get into get into the zone, if you like, making it uh, pleasurable for your customers. It's physical ease, so they don't have to physically do too much, like taking endless parcels back. Or time ease, where you know, you're not taking up too much of their time. But in summary, I, I actually do think, Thomas, that many companies should put make it easy to be a customer on the boardroom agenda. I think it's absolutely essential. You know, and to galvanize everyone's thinking around this concept of easy, because it works internally for the organization as well as, as externally as well. You know, and clear clear the obstacles to making it easy. So many companies put in so much you know, red tape and making things more complicated than they need to. So it's about challenging the practices and procedures and systems that make it difficult to be a customer, saying, why are we doing that? Do we really need to do that for the customer? And it's pretty good business as well, because it costs a lot more to acquire a customer sometimes than it does to keep. It does, yeah. Yeah, five times, they say it takes five times more to acquire a customer than it does to keep an existing customer. Right. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm, I'm, I'm still digesting the implications of whether I'm a, a grumpy customer um, or you're a particularly searching one. But I think I think the point is, and the, my reflection is that we, we all view these things slightly differently. What gives us value? So some of us might be prepared to go the extra yard uh, for that cognitive challenge if it's going to save us a bit of money. Some of us just want things to be really smooth and simple and we'll pay a bit extra for that. So a really useful model there, Moira, for how to keep customers coming back and how to make business easy, even if you're one of the grumpy people. And then the question we're going to be asking everybody during this third series of Leading Edge, and hopefully this is becoming slightly less grumpy after the pandemic, is that as we enter a bit of a a new normal now, uh, and we, we never know what's around the corner, but a lot of people have been working from home. So the question is, what's one thing that you're going to keep doing after the pandemic, a little trick or tip that you've discovered, uh, and what's one thing you can't wait to stop doing? 
Oh, okay. Well, my one thing that I absolutely am going to keep doing is doing yoga. I discovered yoga at the start of the pandemic and I try and do it four or five times a week and it's just amazing. So I'm going to keep doing that no matter what. And the thing that I want to stop doing, well, I'd really like to meet people in person rather than on Zoom or Teams or whatever platform it is. So I would really like to stop doing quite so many things um, remotely and meet people in person. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I haven't tried the yoga, but I certainly was pleased when, when the gyms reopened. Um, it's been lovely to meet you virtually, but uh, and as I say, we've been doing a bit of a hybrid model, but it, wouldn't it be great just if we can all get back together in the near future? But let's let's not knock it because it's enabled us to have a, a really fascinating conversation today about what's going to keep us coming back as customers. So, Professor Moira Clark from Henley Business School, thanks very much for joining us here on Leading Edge. Thank you very much, Thomas. Next time on Leading Edge. One of the difficult things, you know, for an organisation is actually to disrupt your own successful business model. To do that, you really have to rethink every aspect of it, not just translate from analogue to digital. Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leadingedge for more.